Being a geek is all about being honest about what you enjoy and not being afraid to demonstrate that affection. It means never having to play it cool about how much you like something. It's basically a license to proudly emote on a somewhat childish level rather than behave like a supposed adult. Being a geek is extremely liberating. Those were the words of Simon Pegg. I'm Luke Hector and you're listening to the Broken Meeple Podcast. The top 75 continues. On today's episode, I go through my number 50 to 26 of my anniversary special top 75 spectacular special thingy, whatever you want to call it. We're continuing down. The games are just getting better and better. So let's get right to it. Hello everyone, welcome back to the top 75 anniversary special, explosive, spectacular, finimajiggy, whatever you want to call this anniversary thing of mine. Basically, I'm continuing my top 75 list and today we are looking at number 50 through 26. This is the middle ground of my top 75, so the games are just getting better and better. But the creme de la creme of games, from my personal opinion, of course, let's remember personal opinion, will come up later this month. But for now, let's. There's nothing really else to talk about. There's no extra news apart from the fact that uh, you know I'm still waiting for Gen Con games to come over to the UK, and it's taking forever. And I obviously can't wait for that. But that's enough about that. Let's just get on with it. Let's get on with the show. Number fifty through twenty-six. Let's begin. Number 50. Well, I like a good Civilization game, and it doesn't matter how long it is, because in the end I think Civilization games should be fairly lengthy. If you try to make it too short, then you kind of dumb down the essence of a Civilization, that you're building it from scratch, and then it becomes this, like, you know, big, vast empire in front of you. Now, a game I do like, but hasn't made it onto this list, spoiler, Through the Ages. I like Through the Ages, but it's a very long game and it can get quite convoluted and you know that's just with two players let alone three or four. This is kind of my alternative to Fruity Ages and one that I sort of prefer and that's Nations. Nations is a civilization game similar to Fruity Ages where you're buying cards off these rows that give you like advisors that give you special abilities, uh, some wonders that you can build for points you know, things that give you extra people, some that give you extra military power, that kind of thing. And you're doing this throughout the game, managing your resources and building up this almost this tableau of cards in front of you that give you all these abilities, all these different people, while trying to stave off uh, military strength from other opposing nations and obviously get the most points by the end of the game. I think it works fairly smoothly and reasonably quickly in the sense that, you know, your actions come round fairly often you know you don't have to wait for someone to take the whole turn before it gets back down to you now it can be a long game certainly it's not uncommon for this to hit the two and a half to three hour mark pretty easily but i still really enjoy this one and i like that you have that little bit of a difference with each other with your starting tableau now it could use an expansion and i have heard that nations is getting another expansion later this year that brings in all these like unique dynasties that you can have that make you even more unique so that will probably be a surefire hit for me but for now it's resting just pipping the top 50 number 50 nations Number 49. Well, if you haven't heard of this game, then seriously, crawl out of the cave that you've been hiding under and get back to playing some games. This is basically what put Al Moon on the map as far as I'm concerned, and is probably funding him for life in terms of his home personal lifestyle. But that's the ever-classic ticket to ride. 
Now, a slight caveat with this, I'm mainly putting this in my top 75 because of the expansion maps. The expansion maps give you a good amount of variety as to what number of players that you're playing with, which map is good for you, and they all play out just that little bit differently to give you that good amount of variety. Personally, I think the best base set is Europe, because I think the map being more, more like a square as opposed to an elongated rectangle makes just that little bit more sense and it keeps everything nicely packed in even though you can choose to take the stations in and out depending on whether you want a more cutthroat game or an easier game which is always nice to teach the new people. I'm getting a little bit bored with the USA map. I'm not a massive fan that with USA everybody just gets like a massive cluster on the right hand side of the map and then one person is left on his own on the left hand side usually who just runs away with the game because nobody's contesting him for routes and he can get all the big ones that get him lots of points. But the expansion maps are really cool. I really like the Switzerland and India map, and I quite like the Asia one as well. And the Africa is not bad either. I can take it or leave it with Netherlands. But I'm looking forward to the fact that we're getting a UK map soon. That will be pretty cool, where you've got to level up technologies in order to actually build the bigger routes and go off into different counties. And of course, I'm from the UK. So what do you expect? I want a map of my own country, please. Is that too much to ask? But this one goes over really well when I play it with my family. Not my family. You know, well, you know what I mean. You know, my parents and my brothers. And also with non-gamers alike. Ticket to Ride, Surefire at number 49. Number 48. Now, this game, you are lucky if you don't lose the game as soon as you take the lid off the box. Because this is hard. And I mean very hard. Very bone-crushingly slap you in the face the second you lift the lid kind of hard. And that is Ghost Stories. But, despite it being very hard, it's still really good fun to play, and it really does require a good amount of cooperation. Now, you can sometimes get the alpha gamer problem with this, but not when I'm teaching the game anyway, but certainly you just have to watch out for that. But, assuming that's not present, the game is great fun. The ghosts are really nice and colourful, really sort of nice, cool, gritty dark horror theme with them and you've each got your own monk with a choice of special power that you want which are critical I mean if you don't use them you're going to lose and it's just a really challenging back and forth with fighting off the ghost long enough until Wu Fen turns up and then you kill him off. The dice can be a little random, but there are, you know you can mitigate that with some abilities on the board. What shoots this at number 48 though is that White Moon expansion that allows you to summon a giant, almost like an, an energy barrier to repel the ghosts. You've now got villagers from all these different families that you've got to save, and if you do so, you get cool artifacts, but if you don't, then you know negatives happen. And you've just it just adds, and you've even got this like goddess that you can summon who basically just tells the ghost, right, get lost. You know, it really does add some cool thematic bits to the game, makes it a little more clunky. But once you get your head around the extra rules, I think with the White Moon expansion, this game is really solid and a very good co-op game. So, Ghost Stories number forty-eight. Number 47, I cannot believe a game like this ended up on my list, and it shocks me to this day. You can find out more when I do a review of this in the next, I would say, the next couple of weeks I would expect the review to be out. It depends when GamesQuest decide they want to publish it. I don't have control over when they publish my reviews, unfortunately. But this is a game that shouldn't be here. I have usually badmouthed this designer, Reiner Knizia, because I prefer games with theme, and I just you know, Reiner Knizia usually puts theme on the back doorstep, like, you know, Stefan Feld does, and it just usually irks me a bit. Not to mention Reiner Knizia also butchered The Lord of the Rings with that co-op game, but I digress. But this one is based on the reprint, because I haven't played the old version, I've only played the new Fantasy Flight Games version, but this is a reprint of an older game that is just abstract strategy, 
But boy, is it well designed, and boy, is it really strategic. And that's Tigris and Euphrates. I didn't think I would like this game as much as I did, but whoa, there's a good amount of strategy in this game. The rules are not even that complex. They're pretty easy to get your head around, even the wars and the, and the revolts, you know, the internal and external conflicts, as they put it. But when you play this with two, three, or four players, it scales really well, and it's you, you've got to have your thinking cap on, and you can pull off these really cool combos and have these epic turns where you go right I can really change the face of this board by having a war with him let's hope he doesn't beat me and yes you do have that slight issue that you know you might just get hosed because the guy happened to have a load of tiles of the right color at the right time that doesn't happen as often as you might think and to be honest you've got to expect that in a strategy game it can't always go your way but Stellar, really good components, really cool strategy game, Tigris and Euphrates, would you believe it, a Rhino Canixia game, hit my top 75 and hit my top 50 no less, number 47. Number 46, now this is a testament to a type of game that I really enjoy and that's asymmetrical games. I really like it when each player is different than the other players. When you all start off the same, it's a little bit, you know, I, I want to be unique, I want to be my own character, I want to be my own side. And not only that, I also want the game to feel different as I play this side because then the replayability factor goes through the roof. And this was probably the first asymmetrical game I played where I felt it just got it perfect, and that's Chaos in the Old World. Chaos in the Old World uses the Warhammer license, and you play one of the four gods of Chaos, so Nurgle, Khorne, Sonesh, and Zizit. I can never pronounce it, and I don't think anybody and most people in the world can't either, so Zizit. And you can also play Skaven as well, which is an expansion and they're okay. I mean, it's cool to have all five going on, but you don't have to have the expansion. It does introduce some better cards, but you can take it or leave it. But Chaos in the Old World just works really well as this nice, brutal, cutthroat area control game. But what really sells it for me is that every Nurgle god, I'm sorry, not Nurgle, every god that you play feels really different. If you play Corn, you've got a different victory condition to what the others have. If you play Nurgle, you have a different victory condition. But let's, for example, say you want to play Corn. You are going around butchering all the other people's, like, you know, cultists and stuff and doing lots of combat. If you're Nurgle, you're trying to spread out all over the place. If you're Zanesh, you're manipulating the various noble and peasant tokens on the board and doing some tricksy stuff with your various monsters and if you're Zinit then you get all these cool you know everybody's got magic cards that they can play but if you're playing that god then you get to do loads of really tricksy nasty magic stuff all over the place and nobody can really tell exactly what you're going for but they just all feel really different and you know it's fantasy flight again so you've got really cool components you've got plastic miniatures for everything the board it looks like it's effectively human skin stapled down which is okay take it or leave it whether you like that kind of gritty horror or not personally i'm fine with it i mean after all you know you've got lots of gore and various other things like zombies and aliens and stuff so you know i can handle a little bit of that the game just plays really well and it's relatively balanced i wouldn't say it was a hundred percent balanced but i'd say it does a pretty good job particularly if you've got four players in the base game or five players and you know if you max out the players it balances out quite well and you have a little mini alliances with people like you know look seriously that god's getting out of control we need to look at this but in the end there's only ever one victor and with two different ways to win the game you know be it by advancing your dial all the way or by victory points this is a really cool one to try out chaos in the old world number 46 Number 45 is my go-to Space 4X game currently. Now, I've already mentioned Twilight Imperium 3 in the last list, and fair enough, I do enjoy Twilight Imperium 3. It's a cool game, it's really epic, but boy, is it hard to get to the table considering you need to effectively book out the weekend in order to do it. This is one that I really like, though, because you can get it done in about two hours if you're fortunate, maybe two and a half tops. It's, I suppose you could call it 3x rather than 4x because it kind of misses the exploration part out. But this is Empires of the Void. 
not a lot of people talk about this one and a lot of people haven't even heard about it but this was a relatively cool game by a designer SAS self-publisher called Ryan Locat. I think that's how you pronounce it he does most of his own artwork he does most of his own stuff and he puts out some fairly cool games from time to time you know really nice stuff but this one I really like because it's simplest, It's simpler 4X, but it's not too simple. You've still got your various like ships that you can build that are all different with stats. But what I love about this is that when you go to all the different planets, you can choose to either be diplomatic with them or conquer them. Now, being conquering them gets you the resources that the planet has, but nothing else. But if you are diplomatic with them, which is obviously harder to do, not only do you get the resources, but you also get access to a unique tech or ship that only you can have. So if you think, oh, that ship looks really cool, I can go conquer lots of people with that, well, you better be friendly with that race so you're the only one who can build it. And then you've also got your own tech tree that you can advance on as well, just like every other space game. I did put the expansion to this in my number one spot for top most essential expansions. And that's because it's a print and play expansion which does balance out a lot of issues that the base game had and also removes the need for all those fiddly tech tokens. You now just got like a nice little tech tree that you can use. You've got a sideboard for like extra actions you can do on your turn. And it really does solve a lot of the issues that the base game had. So I will put that caveat. Empires of the Void makes number 45 on this list, providing you include that expansion. It's easy to get. You just print it off Board Game Geek and implement it. Works like a charm. You might possibly want a laminator as well, just to laminate over the tech board and stuff like that. It's how I've done it, and it means that they stay in good condition. But number 45, Empires of the Void. Number 44, and I can hear the brass music behind me now playing the titles across the screen. Yes, we're talking about a Star Wars game here, and in this case, we're talking about their new Imperial Assault game. I really enjoyed Descent 2.0, and spoiler alert, it's not on this list, because even though I enjoy it, there are a couple of issues I do have with it. One of the major things I have with it is that because all the heroes go and then the villain goes. It means you get these occasions where the heroes can basically bunch up next to a door or something, knowing what's on the other side, and then all at the same time pulverize through it and muller most of what the Overlord has and before he even gets a chance to act. And you tend to find that you win games in Descent 2.0 a lot more often than the Overlord does, and usually without too much trouble either. But Imperial Assault corrects that. I mean, granted, I, I like fantasy and I like Star Wars, so it doesn't bother me. It's, it doesn't go on this list just because it's Star Wars, even though thematically, wow, it really does feel like Star Wars. But what makes it is that in the turn sequence, the heroes go, then the villain, then the hero, then the villain. And what I mean by that is that only one hero goes before the villain does. The villain has all these, well, villain, empire, whatever you want to call them, has these deployment cards for all the troops that he has. And when it's his turn, he can activate one of those particular squads and get them to do their thing. Same goes for the heroes. When it's their turn, one of them may activate their token and then go and do their thing. The fact that it keeps alternating back and forth means you get rid of that problem that I just mentioned with Descent about everyone just putting up next to a door and going for it. And every time I've played this game in someone else's campaign, the games have been really tight. I mean, they have been down to the wire and never just a pushover. You, on that last turn, are desperate to get that last objective before you potentially lose the entire thing. And the story elements, that where the Overlord has a like multi-choice of what they want to inflict on a particular turn, like you might be going through a sealed door and then either more troops appear or the door might lock behind you and you're stuck there for a bit, you know, or you might activate a self-destruct system or something. The fact that you've got this storytelling element that means that no game is entirely the same really bumps this up. And then on top of that, you've got the two-player skirmish mode if you want to play like a battle lore equivalent effectively, but just using, you know, the miniatures from Star Wars and there's so many scenarios now when you get those little uh, little mini expansion packs with all the miniatures, which is a bit of a cash-in, I must admit, but hey-ho, Fantasy Flight, Star Wars, what do you expect? But they work really well, and this is a really cool game in the box. Imperial Assault, number 44. I can't wait to start my own campaign fairly soon.
Number 43. Earlier on I mentioned a game called Kingsburg, which is a really cool dice placement worker placement game. I just said placement twice. Oh well, never mind. This is the problem you have when you ad-lib these type of things. Now this is the upgraded big brother of Kingsburg. And I'm not talking about Marco Polo. No, I haven't played that yet. But I'm talking about the one that came before, which was kind of one of the first few games that came out on Kickstarter and really showed everyone, wow, games on Kickstarter can actually be good apart from you know the usual garbage that they had. And this is Alien Frontiers. Alien Frontiers has this cool retro sci-fi 60s style thing, you know, where space, you're barely getting into space, and it was all like everyone believed that we would have colonies on Mars by the 21st century and that kind of thing. But in this one, you roll dice and you place them out like Kingsburg, you know, on various spots, and there's restrictions as to what numbers you need. And you are basically not only doing that and collecting resources, you're also trying to put your colonies on this big map in the middle of the board of the planet, and depending what territories you occupy may give you special bonuses but it then after you've done the worker placement element with dice you've also got this area control thing with the colonies as you try to fend off other players it's a really cool mix of two genres and the theme yeah okay you're rolling dice so the theme is abstracted to a little bit but it comes out really nicely in the way that the board looks really cool the fact you can build extra ships quote unquote with dice and the fact that you're laying the colonies on the planet it just it comes out really nicely. Add the alien tech in, for, you know, the tech cards that where you can get extra aliens, and that's a, a, you know another boost to the game. But what really cements it? The factions expansion, because previously you were the same person, and you know what I feel about being the same as everyone else. Factions gave you your own little board that not only gave you a special ability for the entire game, but it also gave you a unique spot that you could put your dice on to do a special action. And then other people could use that action as well, but they had to pay you resources in order to do it. That that was one of the best expansions I've seen for a game in a little while. It's difficult to teach it to new players, but it's solid it's if you can teach this to anybody or if you can just get some people who are used to alien frontiers introduce this factions expansion you will not regret it however don't go mad and grab every single faction pack that you can the original factions expansion is kind of all you need that gives you plenty enough to work with yeah if you've got a load of disposable income you can get the extra faction packs that they've been bringing out lately but to be honest they are way overpriced unless you are the biggest fan of alien frontiers ever because you might buy two of those faction packs you could buy an entire new filler game for that it just i don't know where they've come up with the pricing for those especially the ones that only just give you a few cards it's ridiculous but i digress alien frontiers still a solid game at number 43 Number 42 is a dice game which completely replaces the original card game that it's based on. Dice games are becoming a bit of a thing at the moment where a game gets a dice version of it to make it a bit quicker and a bit lighter. Sometimes they replace the old game, sometimes they're not as good and you can just say, oh well it's a nice nice little game but I prefer the big brother. Or it might just be a completely separate game in its own right and makes no difference whether you like the older brother or not a la Biblios. From what I'm seeing, the new dice version doesn't seem to really feel like Biblios. But this one completely replaced the card game version it was based on, and that is Bang the Dice Game. Bang was a card game where you somebody took the role of a sheriff, and then you had deputies, outlaws, and a renegade, and you played these cards in order to work as a team, depending on which side you're on, as to whether you needed to protect the sheriff, or kill him, or kill someone else. And it was a really cool... Uh, you know, almost like a take that it player elimination game. But it went on for a long time with the cards. It really does overstay its welcome, particularly when you've got a lot of players. Bang the Dice game condenses all that fun of not knowing who's on your side, because all the roles are hidden, and just the chaos of shooting each other and knocking each other out of the game in 15 minutes. This dice game just basically uses the Yahtzee variant, you know, of rolling dice and choosing some and re-rolling others. But it's so simple. You just have your roll, you have your uh, you have your, your character roll with a special power. 
you have your side that you're on, you don't know who's on your side to begin with, not even a sheriff knows who his deputies are, and it's just cool, like, I'm going to shoot you, I'm going to shoot you, as everyone is constantly telling the sheriff, I'm your buddy, protect me, I love you, man, I love you, give me a hug. And there's some very friendly uh, deputies going around, or friendly outlaws, you never know, that's the thing, they're all hidden. And it's just a really cool 15-minute filler game that completely destroys the card game it was based on. I will never play Bang the Card Game ever again, because this one exists. And it goes up to eight players. And to be fair, you only want to play this with at least five players anyway, but it still goes over really quickly when you've got eight, and there aren't many games that do that. So, Bang the Dice Game 42. Number 41, and again, this is a game I never thought I would see on my top 75. It's an auction game. Well, sort of. The second half of the game is auctions. The first half is more about card selection and and choosing what to give your opponents. So it kind of plays in two halves, a bit like how For Sale does. But this one surprised me greatly. I thought, a little auction filler game, I'm not going to like this, but I heard Z Garcia constantly go on about this on the Dice Tower. He put it in his top three player games, I think, and he also put it as one of his best stocking stuffers. It just really worked on me, and I thought, okay, let's try it. Let's see what you're going here with, okay? And that's Biblios. Biblios has now got to the point where it, um, I'll have to look at the rest of this list, but I think it's one of my go-to best filler games that there is out there, and it involves auctions. I normally hate auctions. I mean, how, mo- how often have I beaten the dead horse with regards to Power Grid? But in this one, it works. The card selection part is nice and quick, and you've got to think about, oh, I need this, but do I want to give him that, and... Maybe I'll put that in the auction pile for later, and then I can get it later. Saying later twice, God, I'm repeating my words today. But the second half, the bidding is quick. It's not these massive auctions where the numbers are huge and everyone APs like crazy trying to decide. They're just nice and quick and regular. You flip over a card, three, four, pass. Right, okay, next, six. Blimey, okay, right, pass. You know, and it goes over really really quickly but you've got to think you've got to think Ooh, hang on i'm trying to because in bibliotech you're trying to win uh the points from five different categories and you do this by collecting cards with values on them and the highest value gets the points for the category but the points can change during the game so some get better or worse than others and even though you think that you might not be in the running to win a category if you keep an eye on what people are discarding in order to get more gold during the auction phase you might actually think Hang on a minute, maybe with my two cards here, I could still win that category because nobody else is focusing on it. And lo and behold, I've done that. I have won a game of Biblios where somebody, literally, I thought, I'll keep this two handy just in case nobody else has gone for it and I'm seeing a lot of them being discarded. And lo and behold, I was the only one with one of that color. So, boom, winning points for me. Biblios is a really cool filler. It's been going well with everyone I've shown it to. Now, the hardest part is the fact that the theme is pretty much non-existent, and it's very difficult because of that to sell it to other players in order to get them to play it. But once they do, they've loved it. And this is really popular as a filler game for people I've shown it to, so much so that I'll probably be taking it tonight because I know several people there like it. And by that, I mean my Portsmouth on board group. So, number 41, Biblios. At number 40, we have probably the only CCG on the entire list. And CCG is probably taken a little bit lightly because it's technically not... Well, there are cards, but it's technically a collectible dice game. I'm talking about Dice Masters, and I don't really mind which set you pick, possibly apart from Yu-Gi-Oh! because that's not a massive thing with me outside of Yu-Gi-Oh! Bridged. But certainly all the Marvel ones, and the Dungeons & Dragons one was pretty good as well. But I like... The way that Dice Masters is just a nice little simple game that you can take all your favourite heroes and villains from the Marvel and now DC Universe and put them together in a team however you like. You know, you can make thematic teams or you can munchkin it, I suppose, although I prefer to make thematic teams. And just go at each other with lots of cool little custom dice and a little bit of bag building. Now... I do try out the odd local tournament with this and I would say that this game is preferable for me and put higher on this list because of the non-tournament season. So the 
the casual effect because when you go to a tournament the same cards keep popping up because in the current meta they're basically the all-time powerful cards so you get some cards that never see the light of day because it's like right i must have this black widow i must have this constantine you know it's and it's just that lacks it a bit for me i prefer just casual play where you can just go i want a team made up of nothing but shield members right i'm gonna have pepper pots on the side but i'm gonna have colson and agent hill and nick fury and all that lot you know or I can just have an Avengers team. So I'm going to have to Hulk, I'm going to have Iron Man, I'm going to have four. You know, regardless of whether they're great cards or not, it's just nice to have your own thematic team. So I'm putting Dice Masters at number 40, providing you take it out of the tournament scene every once in a while. Number 39 is a recent party game and a new one to the... Well, I was about to say new one to the list. Technically, this is the first time I've done the list, so maybe rewind that a bit. But 39 is a cool new party game that took ages to come to the UK. It's been out in America for, like, really briefly. We're talking, like, here it is and here it's gone again. It took ages to get released and now I'm glad it has. That is Spyfall. Spyfall is a really cool little party game where one... You have a group of people, most of them know what location they're at when they're dealt out these cards, and one person doesn't and he's the spy. The idea is is that each player asks each other questions so that they can try and figure out who's on their side and who isn't. The agents, or the ones who know what location they're at, are trying to figure out who the spy is and root them out. The spy is trying to figure out what location he's at. It's really clever, quite innovative, plays in a really short amount of time, so you're going to get repeated plays of this on a wide scale. The only reason this doesn't feature much higher on the list, because I do enjoy it quite a bit, is that this is one of the most group-dependent games ever. You can play this with the right group and you will have a blast. But if you play with these people that are not necessarily introverted, but the ones who tend to shy away and just do one-word answers, then it's going to fall flat a little bit. You need to elaborate. You need to give out vague, yet detailed answers, if that makes any sense. You know, you can't just sort of go... And what do you think, you know, are you happy with the experience here? Yes. Well, come on, give some info, you know, because otherwise I have no idea if you're a spy or an agent and I'm just going to accuse you even if you're an agent. So you've got to put a little bit of effort into your answers here, people. But that's why this does fall on the list to the 30s rather than, you know, much higher because there is that group dependency issue. So it's not always a massive hit. But when it is, love it. 39, Spyfall. Thirty-eight, and this is going to start a trend of Euro games, actually, for the next couple, um, maybe even three or four. Then this is a Euro game by Stonemire Games, and so far they're running quite hot on my list at the moment. They haven't put out many games, but they have put out several that I consider, well, these are actually really cool, and there have been others that I haven't played enough that would normally go on this list, perhaps, but I'd need to try them out a bit more. This one, though, is probably my favourite of their hits so far and that is viticulture and that's viticulture with or without tuscany i mean with tuscany it really does elevate it to a whole new level i gotta admit that is a cool expansion even though it's ridiculously expensive and half the stuff you probably won't use but the half that you do use will be essential for the game really but even without it it's still a solid fun euro game of winemaking and there are games out called vinos i think was one and there might be one other, but they're very highly detailed ones. These, This is not quite lightweight, it's more medium weight. There's plenty of strategic depth in here, but you've got a lot of options. You can decide whether you're going to go mad on just buying grapes and crushing them and selling them off, or you can you know, crush them into actual wines and let them mature over time. Uh, you can build. You can now build structures to basically give you extra money. You might just have people come over to your place every now and then for a wine tasting. It's really, it's a really thematic euro, and these are the euros that score highly on my list. It doesn't hit the table as much as I would love, but it's certainly high enough for this list. And you know, it may even shoot a bit higher in the list over time. Uh, the more times I get it out to play with the Tuscany expansion included, because I haven't yet dived into the Tuscany expansion in full to really give it its full sort of you know creditation for it this is mainly what I would rank it even just mostly without Tuscany so once I've given Tuscany a few plays you might even see this climb next year um, I don't think it's going to fall because I I like wine 
I am a cider buff more than anything else. After all, I'm from the West Country, if you've not noticed the accent. But I've started getting into wine quite a bit, particularly white wine, some red wines, mostly um, anything with the word Sauvignon in it, because that is my favourite grape of the lot. But Viticultures, it's a thematic Euro. And you know me, I like Euros with theme. I want to know that these mechanics are not just there for mechanics sake. Granted, not all my Euros have to be thematic, as you'll see later, but certainly my favourites tend to be. Okay, Viticulture 38. Number 37. This is quite a big scale Euro game, or at least it is when you look at the box. And this got a love-hate relationship with a lot of people, because people expected this to be a really big Amerifrash, you know, go-at-each-other combat 4X game. And to be fair, if you looked at the board game cover, you'd probably think that as well. And that's what burned a few people out. But in its essence, it is a Euro bag building game with a lot of strategy, lots of cool options and lots of ways to develop your civilization, quote unquote, in a different way to other people. That is Hyperborea. And don't, you know, do not take bore as for this game to be a bore. This is an entertaining game. You've got an ever-changing map every game. You've got six, I think it's six different uh, races and factions that have different starting abilities, different ways of playing off the offset. So you could focus on those, but you can develop your faction however you like. Just because you're playing the red guys who start off with a nifty little combat ability does not mean that you have to focus on combating everything on the table. You could do whatever you like and it's still a valid tactic. The cool thing about having to sort of, you know, develop various aspects of your civilization, like their movement, their attack, their development, um, their sort of ability to tech up, that kind of thing, is really cool. And as you do so, you're getting, uh, you know, more things into your bag to pull out and see, oh, I've got these actions now. It's a cube bag building game, effectively. But you can get technologies that are unique, so you can buy these and make yourself even more unique. And it's just really cool. And you can get this done in a relatively short amount of time. I mean, I remember playing a 5-6 player once, and I was teaching new people. I think only one person played it once. I was teaching new people. We still got it done in less than two and a half hours with explanation. That's pretty impressive. Five to six players in less than two and a half hours for a pretty large-scale Euro game. You know, this is more involved than a lot of other Euro games. So it's, it's high on my list. I like getting it out every now and again it's you know it's not the shortest game in the world but it's been pretty popular with people that I've shown it to so far so give it a shot even if you were thinking oh this is going to be it's not a Marifrash therefore I'm not going to like it give it a try you might be pleasantly surprised 37 Hyperborea Number 36, and I've just had a look ahead. This is a very Euro-heavy 10 category here. You know, the 30s are very much dominated by Euros, and it's not going to get in, it's not going to change anytime soon. 36 is one of my pure nostalgia games. This game first tweaked my interest as to, ooh, board games have got a bit more interesting. And this was back in university times, when I didn't play board games really at that point, but I did play some weird Steve Jackson card games, and there were the odd card games that I did play outside of things like Magic the Gathering, for example. But this one is still in my collection, and I still think it's just not just for nostalgia, I still think it's a really fun game. It's just neatly designed, it's cool, you've got new characters that you can mix and match. I'm talking about the one and only Evergreen for Fantasy Flight, Citadels. Citadels, uh, hmm, I thought I could hear Eric Summer in the distance shouting about that. Hmm, long story. But Citadels is a cool little card game where you have role selection. You're, you're trying to build up a city in the most expensive city, and to be fair, that theme is a little tacked on. The real meat to this game, though, is the eight to nine character cards that you have as role selection. The first player will put one aside and then look at the rest, choose one, and then you'll draft the rest of these characters, each of their own special ability. And it's really cool that you are trying to think, right, which character do I need this round? And also, you, you might not get them all. You know, you might be last in the queue and you might only have a selection of two or three, in which case you want the king in order to be the first player. So it's important to switch it around. But the cool little bluffing aspect of this is that there is two characters, the assassin and the thief, who directly hurt other characters. They'll steal money or they'll kill them. So they lose a turn. So you want to get the character that you want for your ability 
but you also don't want to be so obvious that somebody with the assassin and the thief is going to target you specifically. If you're sitting there with like six, five or six gold that you've been saving up to build this really big uh, building in your district, then obviously the thief's coming after you. So you want to make certain that either you're the thief yourself or you need to figure out, ooh, is the thief in play? If they're there, what do they think I'm going to pick? So you've got this cool little bluffing and deduction thing going back and forth. Simple game. Don't play it with one five players, though, because it will take a bit of time with that. Keep it to four or five. Four or five is a really good number. But to be fair, Citadels is actually still a half-decent two or three-player game when you're using two rolls at a time as opposed to one, because then you've got only one or two people to think about, and it's this cool back and forth. So give it a try. Citadels, 36. Probably one of my more nostalgic games on the list. Number 35 is a game by Bezier Games, which is on a similar line to Suburbia. It's not Suburbia, but it's kind of like it's almost like it's older brother or even younger brother. It depends which one you find more heavier. But this came out and follows the same sort of mechanic of buying various pieces to build stuff. In Suburbia, you had to build a city. Here, you're building a castle, and that's the castles of Mad King Ludwig. With this one, you are bidding on various rooms that you can put in your castle. And then as you go through the game and try to manage your money, you're building your castle out of all sorts of different things. You know, upstairs and downstairs and gardens and like dungeons and like manner of room, like ballrooms and stuff like that. However you like. But they have to follow logical steps. So, I mean, yes, you will have some areas where the doors don't join up to anything. But if you're going to put other pieces on, they obviously need to join up to doors and corridors and things like that. And by the end of the game, you've created this really funky-looking castle. And it could be all sorts of different styles. And one thing you'll know about me with certain Euros is that I really like it when you create something in front of you as you play the game. If it's just rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, and you've got nothing to show for it, it's not as fun for me. But this one, you're building your cool castle in front of you, and it's it's a good blast. It's not the easiest one to get your head around some of the rules. Some of them are a little bit fiddly. But all in all, I still really enjoy this one, just for creating this stupid-looking castle in front of you. And, well, I mean, whoever this Mad King Ludwig was, you know, if it was a real person or not, I don't know the history. But certainly, if his castle looked anything like the ones I've created, then, hmm, seriously, you might want to sack your architect. But Assholes of Mad King Ludwig, a very humorous Euro at 35. Number 34 is the older brother of the one I just mentioned, and that is Suburbia. Suburbia and Castles of Mad King Ludwig was a difficult one to tell which one I liked better, and they were so similar in how they worked that I couldn't really branch them out further on the list. So it was deciding which one's better, which one's worse. Now, Suburbia takes the spot one higher because partially of the first expansion, but also because I feel there's more tactical and strategic depth in Suburbia. You're building a city with these hexes, and how you build your city depends on how much money and reputation you get. But you've got to be careful, because if you expand too fast, you'll rack up the experience point track far too fast, and it will cripple you in the late game because your income and reputations come down as you get more population. And population is basically victory points in this. So it's quite thematic in the way that works. But the first expansion brought in these cool borders that you can put in your city. And they're powerful, but they're also expensive. And with those, you could basically design your city in all sorts of weird ways because when you have this border on yeah if you put tiles next to it you get some really cool bonuses but it also restricts how you can build because you can't build through it it's effectively try to think it's like it's a rectangle with some notches in it to put four hexagons in it but it's quite long so when you put this in your city you better make certain it doesn't cut off your city so that you can't build very much in the places that you want so you've now got this positional aspect of it on top of what you already had in the original game so this had to elevate it above Castles of Mad King Ludwig for me. I don't own a copy of this one because I feel that I already own Mad King Ludwig and I don't necessarily need both. And I do know at least one or two people that already own Suburbia so if I want to play it, I can just ask them. So not everything has to be in my collection just because I love it to bits. You know, in the end you can only store so much. So Suburbia number 34. Number 
Number 33 is the deck builder that started it all when it came to deck building. It came out and it made such a huge splash. It was top of the Dice Tower People's Choice Awards for years. And it's still, I think, in the top five or at least the top ten now. It's as popular as it ever was before. And with the smorgasbord of expansions, it just gets better. Granted, not every expansion is good, but you can cherry pick the ones you like. And you can have a nice, complete deck building game that is fairly easy to set up and pretty easy to get through really quickly. Preferably with two or three players. I think three players is the sweet spot. And of course, if you haven't guessed it by now, it's Dominion. Dominion, the classic Dominion. I never thought I'd enjoy this game as much as I did. Because I thought, well, there's not much theme in here. It's just basically a mechanical deck builder. But it's very smooth flowing. It's not very fiddly. And the fact that with the expansions you get all these different mechanics that you can use. Like cards that uh, stay in front of you from turn to turn. Uh, big value cards. Uh, trade skill cards. you know, Attacking cards. That kind of thing. You get these really cool things that just change the game. And the fact that you only use 10 piles out of the, what, you know, 100 and something plus that you must have by now, just means that no game is ever the same. And combos will be different from every game. And with that, the variety goes through the roof. And I love games with variety. So Dominion takes the number 33 spot. Number 32, you might know as a game called Perudo. Now, I don't think of it as Perudo, because one, that's a weird name, and two, I didn't like the way that was packaged in this weird little cloth bag and God knows what else. Now, I'm, I'm not going to call it Perudo, I'm calling it Liar's Dice. Liar's Dice, the one that I've got now, is actually in this cool dice box with an open lid, magnetic lid, and it's got the dice in the little cups inside. And it's a simple game. It's pretty much... You know, essentially what they play on Pirates of the Caribbean 2 on the ship when they're bidding for years of servitude to Davy Jones. They basically roll some dice, cover it with a cup, and then make bids as to how many fours, how many sixes, how many fives, you know, that kind of thing. And it goes round and round and round until somebody calls one out and goes, no, you know, that's not right, you're lying or you're bluffing. And then you check to see whether the challenge was good or whether it was, you know, wrong. It's just a cool, simple game, but it's really fun. It's just a few dice and some bluffing, but the bluffing aspect is what really makes this for me. I enjoy the fact that I can go, shake the dice, roll it, and then, even though I'm sitting there with a bunch of twos and threes, just call out six sixes. You know, completely lie about my cup. And then it goes around and everybody thinks I've got sixes. And then I suddenly change it to like five twos. And it's like, what? How many dice you got underneath there? Now, come on, come on, you're lying. And then you lift it up and you were lying at the first, but you were telling the truth and you bluffed them, and it's a good feeling. Really fun game. It's a shame that it only goes up to four with the Lyris Dice box that you get, but I know that you can do it with more, I think, with Perudo. But I don't know, I think, I think four is just a nice number to play the game with. You know, four people, three people to bluff with. You don't have to think, oh god, there's like eight people, there could be 34 sixes, and you know, it's, it gets a little bit much with too many players. I think four is just a nice little sweet spot. Liar's Dice, number 32. Number 31, and yes, yeah, seriously, I mean, I know Lyra's Dice is not a Euro, but this is a heavily Euro, sorry, a Euro-heavy section of my top 75, the 30s, and we're continuing on with more Euros, except this one, like Dominion, was one of those games that started it all. This was one of the ones that, when it came over from Germany, just told everyone, look at this, this is awesome, play it. And I'm talking, of course, the great classic Catan. And it doesn't matter what Catan you've got. Catan, Catan, sea, was it sea, seafarers, cities and knights, explorers and pirates, merchants of Europe, you know, jog, Catan, Geography, Germany, Star Trek, Catan, whatever. I'm talking about pretty much the whole Catan base here. Now, granted, I prefer Catan myself with just like normal Catan with seafarers because you can go to different islands and the map looks a lot nicer to them. And with some elements of traders and barbarians thrown in like the fishermen, the river, the harbour master, that kind of thing. And even the camel thing, the, the traders part with the barbarian attacks is quite cool because you've got this little pick up and deliver aspect to the game that isn't too complicated that's as much as i like to play Catan with normally i'm happy to play any version of Catan, but cities and knights is a little bit too long and a bit too in-depth for a game of Catan, which is mostly about rolling dice and generating resources by luck 
But the trading aspect really what makes this game shine for me. I love that whole negotiation between each player. Come on, I've got this. I need it. Come on, let's make a deal. Make a deal. Got it. Hey, there we go. And now I win. But <laughs> it's really nice, really simple. It's a cool gateway game to teach to new players. And it had to make my list pretty high because no matter how many years it's been since this came out, I think 95, I think it came out, you know, that's 20 years ago. 20 years and I still love this game. So Catan, respect. And finishing off the 30s, but not all the Euros that you're going to hear in this segment. And this is a game by Yuri Rosenberg, but I'm not talking about Agricola. People would automatically think that the minute I mention his name, I'm talking about Agricola. No, on this occasion, I'm talking about a game that doesn't get a huge amount of play from him. I must admit, I don't see many people owning it. People who do own it like it. But most people, when they say Uri Rosenberg, think, oh yeah, Agricola and Governor, and that's about it, really. But this one is one of the unsung heroes, I think, and that is Le Havre. Le Havre. And to be fair, I've been to Le Havre. The Le Havre in this game actually looks better than the Le Havre I've actually been to. But the cool thing with this is that you are getting resources like, you know, fish and meat and grain and stuff. But with this, with all those buildings that you can get and all the different ones that you can put down as well as what you can buy from the pile as it comes out, you can choose a different path to victory pretty much every game you know hmm this game I'm going to harvest all the fish and bake them into smoked salmon and get my points that way uh, nope I'm going to make lots of clothing out of leather and then ship them off at the very end okay no I'm going to get into the girder industry and make lots of iron and steel and keep churning that out for big points even though it's an expensive way to do it or maybe I'll just simply be a bread baker you know I'm just going to be the baker I'm just going to get all the bread bake it nice money go for it Really cool Euro, not the easiest one to teach, I'll admit, there is quite a lot to get your head round, and it's a heavy game, I wouldn't say this was a light game, and I probably wouldn't say it was medium either, I'd say this was reasonably heavy, but it's a really cool unsung hero of Uri Rosenberg's hits, so Le Havre, number 30. Number 29, and I promise you folks, we will finish Euros at some point. Um, let's see, we've got four more, including this one, and two of them are Euros. So, yes, there are some Amerifrash stuff on this list. Well, I suppose you can call them Amerifrash. But this one is another one of those classics. I mean, I think Dominion and Catan and things like this have grouped together in a sense because there is stuff that's better than them, but they're still good favourites. I mean, they're mass sellers for a reason you know they're good games and I think gateway games ring home with me quite a lot because I teach a few games to my non-gamer friends to say look this is what I do check it out and these are the sort of games that I'll pull out and this is probably one of my better ones of the old Euro style ones and that is Carcassonne the great classic Carcassonne you build your map with these tiles, putting your meeples into... I mean, this is pretty much what told me what a meeple was, this game. I'm not sure what game I played where a meeple existed before I played Carcassonne, so I kind of owe it for that. Let's face it, I'm called the Broken Meeple, and Meeple's now mainstream. But this one, where you had the meeples on the road to be a robber, meeples in the city to be a knight, and the farmers, and the monks, and on a base set alone, it's still a solid game. But it gets higher on the chart for me because of the wealth of expansions you have. When you put a lot of expansions in this game, you've got loads of cool rules, loads of cool new tiles, and it really does elevate the game. But the base set is fine, and even the spin-offs that they've come out with are pretty cool as well. I wish I could get a copy and see Carcassonne the City, because I hear a lot of good things about that one, but it's just never going to come back in a print, is it? No one's ever going to reprint that one. Nobody's ever going to sell it either. But the South Seas was a really good one, uh, where you're collecting things like seashells and bananas and that. I not played Gold Rush, probably wouldn't like that one as much as South Seas. I think South Seas theme and colour looks more to me. But it's a really cool game. And if you want to teach people a really easy Euro-style game, I would probably say this is the best one to pick. Maybe this one... Actually, I would say probably this one over Catan. I mean, yeah, it's slightly higher on my list, but what I mean is that I reckon it's easier to teach this, the base game of this, than it is to teach Catan and Dominion. Dominion, you've got text on cards. Catan, you've got to teach them about the roads and the buildings and the cities and that trading thing. Here, all you've got to do is say, here's a tile, pull it down, 
put a meeple on it. This is what the four different meeples do. Simple. And everybody likes building that map. I mean, that's one of the best things about it, where you build the map, you watch it unfold, and you take a photo of it at the end, and they all look different. Really cool game, especially when you start shoving expansions in. The first two big box ones, inns and cathedrals, and traders and builders, I think are mandatory if you enjoy this game. They are excellent expansions, probably the best two that have existed for this game. Carcassonne number 29. Number 28, and we have something that's not a Euro! Although, is it really a Merifrash? Maybe it's technically a hybrid, but it's a co-op, so it, I would call it more of a hybrid. But this one is a really cool game featuring the whole Cthulhu mythos, with all the tentacles and tendrils everything. But I like horror-themed games, you know, I think it translates well into a board game if you do it right. And I also like the storytelling aspect again, so I like getting into the theme and having the story unfold as I play the game. And this is one of the better ones that does it. It had a predecessor, which had got expanded to High Heaven, and now even this one's getting expanded to High Heaven because we've had an expansion for it now, we've got another big box coming out later, and we've already had two expansions for it. I mean, they say it's going to be modular, but seriously, this one, Eldritch Horror is going to go down the way of Arkham Horror at this rate if it doesn't pack it in with the expansions. They say they're modular, but seriously, we've got to store this game. How exactly are we meant to store this game in less than two boxes at the moment, and how are you supposed to do it in less than three or four by the time you've actually packed in more expansions? It's getting ridiculous. But, despite that, it's a really cool, fun co-op game. You've got the cool creatures and horrors that you face. The game plays out differently depending on which uh, ancient one you face, and there's now lots of them. The modular expansions are really cool. I mean, you can go to Antarctica now. You can start uh, going into temples and things like that. And the storytelling aspect's really good. You travel around the world. You pick up the encounter cards, whether you're in a city, wilderness, or on expeditions. And it's really thematic. It's really cool. However, here's a caveat. Do not play this game with more than five players. I have got a friend of mine. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to shout your name. Jacob, you know, great bloke. And he comes up with all these unique ideas for Arkham and Eldritch Horror. He's a really big fanboy with it. And to be fair, he comes up with some really cool stuff. But one mistake he's been making lately, and I'm going to say this to everybody out there who tries this, stop teaching people the game Eldritch Horror with six or more players. It takes forever to finish a game of Eldritch Horror with six or more players. And it puts people off instantly because of the sheer length of the game. Teach it with less players. Three or four. I reckon you should never teach this to new players with more than four players. I think you should just do it like that. Nice and small and the game goes fairly quickly. I mean it's still not short but it's certainly you know within decent levels. Five is the absolute max I will play this game with and that's only if the majority of those players know what they're doing. I'd rather cap this at four. I know that sounds like a limitation, but I enjoy playing this game solo. It's a cool solo game to play where you can try out all the different ancient ones. Two-player, it's still pretty cool. You can um, control two investigators if you want. But three or four is a really cool sweet spot, and five is my absolute max. I will never play this game with six, seven, or eight players. I have played a six-player game of this. It took forever. I would not even begin to comprehend the time it would take to play this with seven or eight. I cannot imagine why anybody would do that, especially with expansions. It just sounds crazy. But, well, maybe I'm a bit crazy. After all, Cthulhu. But the idea of this co-op game is great. It's the sequel to Arkham Horror, which I already thought was a fantastic game as well. And will it be higher on the list? Who knows? You'll have to wait and see. But Eldritch Horror, number 28, really cool horror co-op game. Number 27, and yes, this is the final Euro on this 25 list. I don't know whether there's lots of Euros on my top 25. I've got a feeling there's going to be less of them than there are on this list. Well, to be honest, that's not difficult. Look at my 30s. I think that's all the Euros ever. But this is the final one on this section. And it's Uri Rosenberg again. And it's not Agricola or Caverna. You know, everyone's sort of thinking, oh, where did that appear on your list? Because they know I like those games. But this one was a recent one that he brought out, which is kind of what I like to call Uri Rosenberg's greatest hits. It has elements of Agricola, elements of Caferda, elements of Glass Road, elements of probably, you know, various other games that he's done, like Aura and Labora and that. 
That was Uri Rosenberg, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was. Um, but this is a two-player-only game. But you can play solo. And I do enjoy this as a really good solo game. This is probably my most meaty solo game I have. And it's still great fun because the variety of the paths to victory is exquisite. It's really strategic and in-depth. And, oh yes, I should probably say the name. It's Fields of Arl. Or Arla. I don't know how you pronounce it. I think it's Arl. It's kind of like an autobiographical game of uh, Uri Rosenberg's um, family of what they were like in Germany. And it's just really cool because in this, not only are you doing the usual farming and, you know, growing resources or animals, that kind of thing, but you also can trade to other villages. You can also uh, get vehicles like carts and that in order to transport goods. You can just ship in tons of goods, you know, collect as much timber and all that as you can for points. You have tools that... Uh, start off at a similar level but you can upgrade those for more points or you can upgrade specific ones in order to make the actions that you take at other parts of the game even better so for example if you want to uh, collect uh, fish for example you know food fish then you start off with a basic little fish trap but you could upgrade the fish traps to a point where every time you want to collect fish you collect a lot of fish so you can make yourself really unique and as a two-player game yeah it is a little multiplayer solitaire i mean it is worker placement but and to be fair there is actually some contention between the two of you as to which spaces you want but it's not quite as tight as all that but it's still really cool to play one or two players i think this is a fantastic heavy euro game for that thing i wish it could be more players but there's no way you'd be able to do that without making the time length ridiculous and it probably wouldn't feel much different with a four player than it with a two player so with this one this ranks so highly because i think this is one of my favorite solo euro games really cool fun tons of variety and that's what i like in games variety just elevates it to a level where i'm going to put it on this chart although it still has to be a good game and this one is designed by urin rosenberg fields of arl 27 And the final one for this list, it's another co-op. It just missed the top 25, but I still think this is a really cool game, a really cool co-op game. Now, most people are probably wondering, where will Dead of Winter appear on your list, Luke? Well, I can tell you now, it's spoiler alert, it's not anywhere on my list. And if you've been paying attention to my top 10 lists over the past few podcasts, you'll know why, because I put it at number one in my most disappointing games list. No, 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 no Dead of Winter on this list. However, the one before that, which I kind of think is a predecessor, Battlestar Galactica, is not this one. (laughs) Hehe, fooled you. Nope, this is the one that came first. This is the simple version based on the Arthurian legends, Shadows over Camelot. This one is a nice, easy game to play, even when you've got seven players. You know, I think that's the max seven, eight with the expansion. But... It's just really simple to teach. It looks beautiful when you set it up. And yes, it looks a bit daunting to some players. But all you've got to do is just say, look, these are where you can go. These are your actions, good and bad. And here's the how you play the cards. And it's basically just poker hands. It's not difficult to teach poker hands because everybody knows what a three of a kind and five, you know a straight is and all that lot, even if they've never played poker in their lives. But this one is just a really cool, fun co-op game. Nice and simple. The traitor element is brilliant because you don't know that there's a traitor. There might not be a traitor, but you don't know that. So you're always suspecting other people. It's like, ooh, that was shifty. I think you're the traitor. And everyone's accusing everybody, but still kept relatively simple. And it doesn't take very long to play. And, I mean, with the expansion, it's really tough. But even the original game's not that easy. I mean, if you know what you're doing, I suppose, if there's no traitor... You can do it relatively easily, but when you've got a traitor in the midst, you know, you've got to, you know, find out who he is because he will mess you over at the worst time if you don't. Compared to, what's it, the Daddy Battlestar Galactica, this one plays a lot quicker and is a lot easier to teach and doesn't take anywhere near as long. Granted, the theme is not perfect. I mean, there is some good fantasy theme there, but the fact that you're not allowed to say what numbers the cards are, it's kind of a quirky rule, but I always enforce it on myself. I mean, if other people want to say threes and fives, I don't care. But I always love saying, here's my peasants, here's my squires, here's my champions and that. Because it's just funny. Everybody cracks up when these when you start talking like that. And you cannot play this game without cracking at least 20 million Monty Python quotes. So, And I love Monty Python and Holy Grail. It's a fantastic comedy. So I'm not going to knock that. There are some games where somebody will sing a song just because it's the same song as the 
title as the game like Ticket to Ride horrible song I hate it when people sing that one but this one if you want to crack a Monty Python joke perfect because it's going to make me laugh Shadows of a Camelot great co-op just missed the top 25 but this is still a great co-op game Woo, where's my voice god? And that's the next 25. That was my, I believe, my... Ooh, let's have a look at all these papers here in front of me. Look at that. All these papers that I had to spend ages organizing. My number 50 through 26. And all of these games I really enjoy. But next part before the end of August will be the top 25. These will be the creme de la creme of my favorite games and there are some good ones on there. I cannot wait to talk about them. Some of them you're just going to hear me gush over, particularly in the top 10. I can't wait to give out my top 10 this year because I think a lot of you will probably be surprised by some of the entries on there, but there are probably a few that you're going to expect. But even then, I just love talking about these games and I cannot wait to get part three of this recorded. This one should be airing probably around the 17th or 18th, something like that. And then the third part I will air probably next week. So maybe around the mid-twenties. I know it will definitely come out before the end of August. I will get recording, so don't worry. It's going to be there before August the 31st, I promise you. So I cannot wait to reveal those top 25, but for now, I hope you've enjoyed this section of the top 75, the middle part, and I will catch you on the next episode. So take care, enjoy gaming, and remember, if you're hearing this on release day and the Kickstarter for Dice Portsmouth is still ongoing, I think it will probably only have a few hours at the time you listen to this, then get pledging, make that a reality. We can get board gaming cafes back into the UK. It will happen. So get pledging now. So. Take care, enjoy gaming, I'll see you next time. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to The Broken Meeple. Thank you for your continued support. If you wish to check out more of my work, you can find my website at www.brokenmeeple.blogspot.co.uk You can also find me on Twitter at The Broken Meeple and also check out my Facebook page. The music used in this podcast has been kindly provided by CMA Music. I'm Luke Hector, you take care and enjoy the hobby.